What's up everyone, this is Shiragam and I want to welcome you to the newest edition of the Hashish Inn brought to you by Rosin Evolution. You can visit them at rosinevolution.com. As always, thank you for tuning in. On episode 22, I'll be talking to Jeff of Michigan Made Melts. I was excited to finally talk to a hash maker working in the Midwest and someone familiar with a medical program having worked in one for over a decade in Michigan. So definitely stay tuned for that. A huge thank you to our community on Patreon. You're the driving force behind this project. Without each of you, there is no podcast. So thank you. As a small token of our appreciation, we'll be doing another edition of Resin Talk. Since people on Patreon seem to dig it, it'll be with a panel of East Coast hash makers. It'll be exclusive to the Patreon for the first two months. So if you're interested in watching that, becoming part of the community, accessing additional interviews, check out our Patreon. The link is in our Instagram bio, or you can visit us at patreon.com backslash the hashish in. That's the hashish I-N-N. A big shout out to our sponsors, Rosin Evolution. You can follow them at Rosin Evolution 100 on Instagram or their site, rosinevolution.com. They are the best bags in the game. They're high quality bags, they're well-made bags, they're reliable bags. Rosin Evolution is the rosin bag to use. They have pre-presses, they have parchment, and my personal favorite, they're incredibly well-priced and accurate wash bags. So basically anything you need to make rosin, visit rosinevolution.com and use our savings code the letters THI, the number 710, that's THI 710, all together saves you 5% on your entire Rosin Evolution purchase. A shout out to our homies Pele Polare, who you can visit at pelepolareco.com or on their Instagram at pele underscore polare. They create high grade thermal jacketing systems that allow you to keep your vessel at the temperature that you need. It'll help battle condensation and it'll allow your material to stay at a steady temperature for longer. In the end, you'll use less ice, you'll spend less money, and you'll get a cleaner product. You can even add your artwork to your gear. Visit them at pelepolareco.com. That's P-E-L-L-E-P-O-L-A-R-E-C-O.com. They also just released some mini thermal jacketing systems for when your head stash is on the go. It's made of the same high-grade material, so grab your Terp Saver and use our savings code, the letters THI standing for the Hashish In. Again, THI saves you 5% with your Pele Polare order. Last but not least, our homies Low Temp Plates, who you can visit at lowtemp-plates.com or on their Instagram at lowtemp.plates. If you're looking for a rosin press, if you want it to be reliable, if you want it to be reasonably priced, if you want it to be able to grow with your needs, if you want it to be the last press that you'll need to buy, and more importantly, if you want peace of mind, then buy a low temp plates rosin system. Again, you can find them at lowtemp-plates.com. 
They provide you a lifetime warranty. It's all U.S. manufactured equipment. The customer service is unbeatable and it'll definitely give you the most bang for your buck. Again, visit them at lowtemp-plates.com and use our savings code, the letters T-H-I-D hashish in to save 5% on your entire order with low temp plates, which on a rosin press system could be a nice chunk of change. So do yourself a favor, help yourself out, help us out, and buy some great gear by using the letters T-H-I when you check out with low temp plates to save 5%. A shout out to Starfire Edibles for sitting with us last month to do our web series. If you'd like to check that out, again, check out our Patreon. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy the episode. Today, I am really excited to be here with Jeff from Michigan Made Melts. You can follow them on Instagram at Michigan underscore made underscore melts. What's up, Jeff? How are you today? Good, good. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Of course, man. I'm doing well. Thank you. And I appreciate you taking time out of your Sunday afternoon to you know, kick it with me a little. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, you know, before the whole epidemic kind of changed the world, Michigan was one of the places that I was really looking forward to getting out to and still hopefully in the future. And honestly, in part, it's because, like I mentioned to you last time, as the podcast has kind of continued, it's really interesting to me to see where people are listening from. And Michigan was kind of an unexpected one for me. But there's a lot of people out there in Michigan that are focused on the resin. And, you know, shout out to all the people in Michigan who support our community. It's quite a good number of people. The other thing I mentioned was that these people have also been super nice and they've offered to like drive me around people from Michigan, people from Ohio. And I'm curious if that's kind of a generalization of people in the Midwest and well, be people being generally nice. Would you say that's true? I mean, yeah, I'd say it's uh, very true. I haven't got a chance to really travel too much. Definitely been hungered down here at the farm, you know, learning and keep my uh, my hands busy. But uh, I'd say people are pretty nice and this industry has definitely developed a lot in the, the medical scene. And it's uh, cool to see what it's become so fast in the last five to 10 years. Yeah, and you were one of the people uh, slash companies that a few other people from Michigan wanted to hear from as they feel that you were one of like the early people to really adopt and, and start pushing solventless in the state. And I'm curious if you see yourself in that light or are you kind of just doing your thing and not really thinking about that? Uh, yeah, I definitely think I was one of the first few people to bring the solventless scene to open eyes and get everybody interested in it and uh, get people excited about it. Get you know, get a good product out that people might want to make themselves, might want to try as a patient, you know, something that really has some true medicinal values and definitely just trying to push the envelope. Early on, we just wanted to do something different and always enjoyed different products I'd seen maybe even out West. I, I feel like out West was one of the first few places I seen like people make a dabble water hash or, you know, sieving it, grading it and something I wanted to replicate. and. Uh, so we were pretty successful in doing that. And from there, we wanted to 
try new things. And we got tips about like the freeze dryer we noticed on hash church. So we jumped right into that and started freeze drying early on. And I, I really think it helped help push the scene here. I think people enjoyed seeing it and having it available. Yeah. And last time we spoke, you mentioned that now there's quite a few people doing what you consider pretty high level solvent lists. And I'm curious how things have evolved in the last 10 years in Michigan. And has it been a natural progression to where guys like yourself started pushing solventless there and people started becoming more aware or maybe more educated about it and started to try to do it themselves as well? Oh, definitely. I feel like uh, for the first few years there, it was me and only a few other guys. And now there's over, say, at least a dozen dozen people here making making some really good product and people that I can even learn from myself. You know, it's it's pretty cool. Yeah. So going back to the idea that we talked about a little earlier about, you know, being nice and you mentioned the community, the cannabis community kind of being helpful to each other. Do you feel like everybody's generally pretty helpful and pretty willing to, you know, share tech or whatever it may be. Yeah. Yeah. I'm always uh, pretty open to it as well. If anyone ever has any, any questions, uh, hit me up, you know, I'd like to uh, shoot the shit and trade info. You know, I don't, I don't have a, have a, anything to hide and anything I can learn from somebody else or teach them. And it's a, it's a cool thing to do. Yeah, for sure. I agree, man. I don't know that everybody feels that way, but, I think it's cool that you do. So you're born and raised in Michigan. You told me you grew up not too far from Detroit. Can you tell me what the vibe was like growing up there and what some of your earliest experiences smoking cannabis were? Early on, I mean, when I was first growing up, the medical scene really wasn't around. So just like anybody, it was kind of hard to get something or had to go somewhere, you, you know, your parents wouldn't approve of. But uh, you know, as things came along, I think uh, we, I was just getting through high school as the medical came about. It was still kind of strict, though. It was only, you know, a few, few people could get it. You know, you had to have cancer or something like that, something pretty serious. But uh, a few years later, I think I was in uh, my 20s. My roommate got uh, his caregiver card and I kind of helped along with the grow and got to get my hands in there and learn till I was old enough to get my own thing going. But shout out to uh, him for uh, helping do that and getting my feet wet early on, you know. Yeah, and I'm curious, do you still, I guess, have any kind of working relationship with that friend or is that something kind of the past? Oh, yeah. Still hook him up. He's actually a patient of mine. So uh, when I can, and he's, he's a nice guy. Yeah. And so, you again, you were telling me last time that now you're located in what's known as the Thumb area, which is the east side of Michigan. and Part of the reason that you moved there was because you were at an indoor facility closer to the city and there were some regulations that kind of were forced upon you that, that made you make the move. Can you tell me a little bit more about the structure of the Michigan cannabis scene, you know, starting in like 2009, 2010, like you said, with the medical and how has that changed? So for a while, uh, I was kind of still a gray area. You know, you didn't want to tell anybody where you're growing, what you're doing, things like that, just because the city would, you know, find a way to pick on you or 
find some kind of zoning ordinance. What happened to me about 2017, 2016, I think right around New Year's, I got hit with the zoning ordinance and was kind of forced out of our building. We fought it for a while and just ended up moving. It just wasn't worth the fight. And I think when they, they tried to, uh, tried to work with us for a little bit and then they just kind of changed their mind and that, that was kind of the end of it. And nothing bad ever happened of it. They, uh, we're pretty nice about it, but besides the fact of us having to move, they, they didn't kick our door in or nothing. But got a letter that said we we're, you know, there's already we weren't zoned in that building for for uh, cannabis production or cultivation, and uh, there really wasn't much we could do. We fought it for a while, and now now they say that caregivers have the right to do that wherever they need. But um, that was after we had already moved and kind of found a good deal up in. Uh, the thumb area and now we're up north yeah and so you mentioned earlier how you basically started almost assisting with a buddy of yours in the medical scene so can you talk to us a little bit about your journey as a caretaker you know started small started just even you know on a hobby level started in a tent then moved to you know the bedroom hung a couple lights up in the bedroom and went from, you know, building a room in the basement to fill in the basement. And then we were lucky enough to have uh, some family that had a industrial building. So I got some, had a good landlord and was able to pay rent and, you know, get something on a bigger scale going. Can you tell us a little bit about how that caretaker patient relationship works? Like how many plans do you get per person and that type of thing? You're allowed five patients here in Michigan. It's pretty much always been like that as far as I'm concerned. Um, You're allowed 12 plants per patient and uh, two and a half ounces per patient. Now, the two and a half ounces, is that like dry weight or like finished product type thing or per plant or how does that? Yeah, that's uh, dried flour. Okay. And we talked about establishing relationships. So early on, I'm curious how you went about that, you know, A, with the person that you ended up assisting with, and then B, how you go about establishing relationships with people that need a caregiver. I mean, you just had to get your name out there. At that time, I knew some people that had already used cannabis. So it was it was a little easier for myself to, to find some people, but you know, if, if you were just getting new into it, you just, that'd be, that'd be your first thing is find some people that smoke cannabis and need to find a better deal. I guess that, you know, try to try to make it better for them than they already got. Yeah. And do you think it was also outside of getting a better deal also looking for someone? Right. Yeah. Something better, better product or, you know, something more reliable. Right. Somebody they trust. And now there's not only medical, but there's also recreational in Michigan, correct? Correct. You're still operating under the medical umbrella. Yep. I'm just a caregiver and I uh, process for a couple other caregivers. What do you see in the rec market there? Like, is it a good thing for people of Michigan? It's it's hard to say. I, I think uh, there's been some issues with licensing in the beginning, and 
same with even the uh, medicinal licensing here in the state. There were some issues with that. I'm not 100% familiar. I know it was kind of a rocky road, but I'm just kind of chugging along on the caregiver thing and keep my head down and working, you know? Yeah, for sure. One thing that you brought up that I felt was interesting last time was that you said the medical actually has a higher testing regulation. Uh, If I'm not mistaken, I'm not sure about that. Okay. I can't believe it's taken 22 episodes to talk about this, but I wanted to talk about knife hits because you brought them up last time and (laughs) uh, you were telling me that one of the first times, if not the first time that you tried bubble hash, it was knife hits. So tell us a little bit more about that experience. I mean, it's when I was first introduced to hash, it was, it was the way to smoke it. I mean, as far as we were concerned, um, on some nice bubble and throw it on the, you put the knife on the, the hot plate of the stove and get it warm and, or two knives, you drop it on one and you just smush it with the other knife and suck it up with a metal straw. And there you go. You're smoking your hash without a bowl or putting it on some, uh, on some other weed or in a joint or something. It was kind of the first way to do dabs, I guess. What, what I was, you know, taught. Yeah, no, that's funny, man. Uh, I think maybe, you know, some people are a little too young to remember knife hits, but I thought it was funny when you brought it up that that was kind of your, your first introduction to it. And like you said, it was, it was kind of the original dab, right? Right, right. I mean, you can even do it with flour. I remember when I was back living in Central America, that's where I started smoking. And yeah, people, you know, a friend or two, would they, they do it with flour too, so... It's just kind of funny, but uh, was it an immediate connection to the bubble once you started or once you had a chance to try it? Yeah, definitely. It was just, it was awesome to me. I could produce something that, you know, wasn't dangerous to make because the more research I had done on hydrocarbons, it almost, in the beginning, it scared me more because I didn't have the money to do it safely and, uh, you know, putting some uh, product or some trim even in the beginning or some lower buds and some water and ice, you know, it was seemed pretty easy to me, you know, stir it up and dump it through some hash bags. I think I had watched like some video on YouTube with some guy making or some somewhere on the internet and, you know, gave it a shot and we came up with a little ball of hash that was way more than we'd ever, you know, found around town. And that was, that was awesome to us first few times. I found that interesting last time that we talked that when you were talking about washing material early on, it seemed like you were so much more excited for the wins for the times that you guys actually got hash as opposed to being too hung up on the losses of the times that you guys weren't yielding hash. Yeah, because I mean, we definitely learn from it. You start to put things together and realize what's going on and maybe your environment and and you started to learn about cold rooms and things like that as time progressed and how and we learned how delicate really the trichome was and all the you know the things and variables that we needed to control in our environments and and the, and the production of it you know you talked about watching videos what were some of your references at the time it's getting uh seen seen a couple videos from maybe even just subcool stirring up some stuff uh, on YouTube. Uh, I think uh, on the forums, Matt Rise forums. Um, 
I don't know if those were the initial ones that I initially learned from, but as I was getting into it and trying to learn more, I, you know, those are the ones that I, I definitely remember at least. Yes. And so can you tell me about some of your early experiences making bubble? Early on, I mean, we used to, we, we even started maybe in the first year that we were making bubble. That was, uh, let's see, maybe even 2010, 2011. We we're just, you know, stirring it up and pressing all the water out of the ball of hash at the end. So that was like as far as we were drying it for maybe the first few months we were making it. And then we learned how to even break it up with a knife. From there, we started microplaning it, sieving it, breaking it out on a bakery racks, getting into cold rooms a few years later. And um, from there, about 2004, 2015, we started freeze drying and kind of the uh, process slowly progressed into what it is now. Right. So you really started growing for flour like the majority of other people, it sounds like. Yep. And then you started moving into growing for hash. Was that around the same time that you started washing, like in 2010, 2011? Started growing right around the first times I started making hash also. I just kind of had the byproduct of uh, trim and lowers. So we started making hash and that was just, you know, my way to make it without, you know, doing any hydrocarbons or something dangerous. So it was kind of right around the first few times I started growing. I started, you know, just playing around with the hash process. Do you feel that that was beneficial in the sense of you know now washing nugs is kind of the norm but back then it was a different mindset and it was about using the trim it was about making another product out of essentially what would otherwise be waste so do you feel starting by washing trim was important to learn the lessons that you needed to get to the point to where you would be able to wash butts? I mean, uh, de definitely early on. It's definitely something nice to practice with, but if you're going to make a, a nice, pro uh, like a, the best product you can, definitely uh, using some whole plant, fresh frozen, or, you know, some dried product. Nowadays, if it's dried, dried to like perfection, it's, it's going to be, uh, it's still going to come out really nice. Yeah, and I'm curious that trim and smaller buds that you were working with, was that dried and cured material? Um, sometimes it wasn't. Uh, sometimes it was. Sometimes uh, it's easiest to, you know, just without having the best drying area and things like that, it was just easy to freeze it up, bag it up, and put it in the freezer because, you know, it's not going to be over dried or things like that. Was that weird to you at first, bagging it up and freezing it? No, definitely. So it was a way to keep it fresh. Do you think in part that confidence came from, I guess, seeing other people doing it? Yeah, I would agree. I'd agree. That's definitely, I mean, that was what I was learning. Right. So you mentioned going from the tent to the bedrooms, then a couple of bedrooms to the basement. Tell me about your setup at the time and, and some of the things that you learned in those early years of growing? Um, well, we were using uh, just a good old metal halide, some fluorescence to, uh, to veg, and then using the high-pressure sodiums. I, I, I'd say we learned all kinds of things because every, every different room had its own 
own thing you needed to learn about or every different environment, whether it be different, different house or different season, even Michigan's got a lot of different, different seasons that, uh, or even during the week, the week might change completely. You know, one day you might have something going on. It's too humid. It's raining outside. And, uh, other day it might be too hot and you gotta, you know, change something in your room because early on or, even, you know, nowadays, if, some, if air conditioner goes out, you, you know, just got to uh, gotta be ready to uh, change something up if needed at all times. Once you started growing for hash, do you feel that that improved your sensibility as a grower in producing a better product and controlling all the variables that you're talking about? Uh, yeah, it's definitely a little different because you're, you're, you're not always just worried about nug size or things like that. You're worried about trichome coverage and resin production and uh, even how well they uh, extract from there in our process. It's, it's, and even, even the second you think you might know uh, a strain might be great washer, you get it in there and it, it could uh, change your mind. You might even need to take it from fresh frozen and dry it out and it might run better. So it's, it's, there's a lot of different variables and we're still learning every day, but even, even growing towards hash and working towards it, we're still learning and surprised every day on new things we might learn. It's very interesting. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, you've been doing it, you know, for a good while, almost 10 years. So that you say that you're learning every day is pretty cool to hear. Thank you. Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely fun. It's, it's uh, awesome that myself and others get to uh, do this for a living and, and enjoy what we do, you know? For sure. It's a blessing, man. So let's talk about some of the genetics that you guys were running back then. You mentioned... Last time we spoke, you were running a lot of TGA gear. Yep. We, uh, we ran some of his stuff. We, uh, I think we started off with some jelly beans, some cheese quake, tried a bunch of, uh, bunch of stuff. See the deep purple, the quirkle. We're pretty much hashing it all too. So at that time, anything that would pretty much hash good would keep it around. See, the jelly bean definitely, definitely washed pretty well. Uh, yeah, and, that, and it's funny, and I bring this up specifically because I've had other people mention growing TGA gear kind of in their early growing slash hashing career, and they weren't super stoked about it. You know, they, they weren't really, I guess, getting good results uh, from that. So I found it interesting that you were and. Like you, you mentioned the deep purple, and you said that was the first purple that you got to produce any kind of water hash. So it's intriguing to me the contrast. I mean, you know, you got to sort through some gear, just like uh, just like anything. You got to maybe go through a couple phenos and find one that's going to work pretty well. Um, it's definitely harder back then. There was wasn't as many breeders breeding towards. Uh, water hash extractions or hash extractions at all. So, I mean, they definitely had to maybe do some more sorting through genetics in the past than you have to now. But uh, I would agree there's, you know, there's definitely better breeders as, you know, time went on here. 
Right, for hash specifically, like you're saying. Right. You know, so going back to the idea of the Jilly being doing well for you guys, was that a selection that you had made, obviously, from like some packs? Yeah, I mean, I was pretty much always planting my own seeds. Most of the stuff we would run, we'd get some clones from a few other buddies, but most of the stuff I would run was from seed. Was there a reason behind that? Was it like about keeping health in your garden or was it just about trying new gear? I try new gear, having something that maybe somebody else doesn't have. Yeah, and talk to me a little bit about your selection process. Like, how do you select the plants that you want to keep? First of all, we're usually going to be picking something to run that we're, we're going to like the terps in the past or like how it's washed in the past to begin with. Um, very rarely just take a shot in the dark at some names or something like that. Definitely usually have to have some data or have uh, somebody who's, you know, said it's done well for them, you know, or see it as done well for somebody who we look up to. But from there, yeah, something that's got nice turp profile it, it's going to have to wash well and it's going to have to produce i mean it's it's going to have to have the couple same basics that most people are looking for right and did that dynamic change from when you first started to now so for example at the beginning were you willing to grow and wash more random things let's call them as opposed to now where you need to, like you say, have more data to back up your selections. Yeah, because there wasn't as much in the past, as much data to go off of. So you kind of had to uh, dig down and, and create the data, you know, and, and to figure these things out and share them with other people and show them how they yield, how they do in certain processes. But that, you know, that could be uh, phenotype to phenotype or different clone could do totally different. So, you know, it's a lot of variables. For sure. Do you feel like it's still going to take a subset of people to continue popping random stuff and trying to process it into water hash outside of the people using kind of tried genetics? Yeah, definitely. If you want to, you know, find, find the next best thing or, find something that's better than what most people are used to now, you know, something that might yield higher or have a higher trichome density or a different terpene profile. Yeah. It's different terp profile. People aren't used to, you know, something, something new pretty much or something better. It definitely, uh, definitely can't hurt to think outside the box or try something new. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it's time consuming and expensive and I guess, that's probably one of the hardest parts about about that. But I, I agree, man. I, I think if people are just searching around random things that maybe nobody else is and find something cool, that's pretty cool as well. Definitely. So you told me in uh, it was either 2013 or 14, you were able to get out to Colorado. You hit up the 710 Cup. And that was the first time that you had really seen water hash outside of Michigan. Can you tell me a little bit about that experience? Yeah, we had ran into a few people that uh, were making water hash out there and got to uh, trade some products. 
most of the stuff that was going around the cup was obviously hydrocarbons or BHO and kind of the normal scene that was happening around Michigan, just a lot more of it. But uh, it's definitely cool to see the scene had, you know, how it progressed over there in a few years from being legalized or I think that was the first year it was legalized that I was out there. It was cool to see, you know, what had happened and that, you know, that could happen elsewhere. It was a cool thing to see. Yeah. And you told me you came across Nicotee and that after the experience of seeing the, the water hash out there and meeting a few people out there, it kind of helped you, let's call it up your game once you got back to Michigan. Yeah, definitely. It uh, definitely got me excited to get back and get back to work and, you know, try to, uh, try to up my game. So you brought up the hydrocarbon. I'm curious, did you ever open blast or did you ever try that? Or were you, like you said earlier, just not really, that really just wasn't appealing to you? Yeah, no, I had never tried it. It was, yeah, it just wasn't appealing. I, uh, the more research I had done and all my buddies, well, not all my buddies, but, you know, a few people were shoving stuff in a plastic tube and <coughs> hitting it with the lighter fluid, you know, and it just, yeah, it wasn't appealing to me. It didn't seem, seem right. Yeah, sounds smart. So earlier we talked about the fact that you were growing near Detroit, uh, you were indoor, now you're in the glove and you're running greenhouses. And to me at least, it seems like something that is trending amongst hash makers. So I'd like your thoughts on greenhouses and maybe some of the plus and minuses. Um, I, I mean, I definitely enjoy it, whether it just be to, to get outdoors and get away from the expensive light bills. It's definitely cool. It's, it's definitely a small learning curve, definitely in new things to overcome that, you know, you wouldn't have to uh, deal with indoors, but, um, I'm still learning. This is only my second season, so I've still got a lot, a lot to learn, but it definitely seems like it, you know, it's, it's working for me and, I think I might keep doing more of it. I, I, I definitely not going to do any, any less. I think I'd like to put up cup more in the future. And like you said, I see a lot of other people doing it and looking into it or um, doing a lot of, a lot of stuff with greenhouse. So I think there's uh, a lot to, uh, a lot to be had there, but I'm still learning. I, uh, I just started last year as my first year and this is, uh, this is my first season uh, with uh, the blackouts and doing light depth myself. So. Yeah, so the first season, I mean, basically, would you call it like a full-term greenhouse? Yeah, it was, uh, by, by the time I had it set up, it was, uh, like, it was, uh, shoot, probably beginning of June by the time I had it set up last year. So I, I just, you know, put one crop in it and let them rock out and let them flower, you know, when they wanted to. Right, and so now doing the light dip, how many harvests are you able to have a year or how many harvests are you shooting for a year? Uh, I'm just doing two this year, but uh, I, I think I could squeeze in three if I really tried hard enough or had a few better heating methods other than just like a heater, you know? Right. Which is yeah something we touched upon last time is I was asking you about Michigan weather. Obviously I'm guessing the winters can get pretty cold and maybe 
moist. Yeah, especially even uh, the late grow season, late fall here. It's, you know, you get a couple good rains and just doesn't warm up enough to carry that moisture out of here for a few days. And by the time even it does start to think about leaving, it's, you know, raining again or, you know, gets to get a little bit more. It's um, definitely dewy and moist in the late season, like outdoor season here. Yeah. And, you know, I know you're not doing it now, but you were saying that if you decided to put some heaters in the greenhouse, you would shoot more for being at the root level. Yeah. I've got a couple heaters in there now, CO2 burners, uh, things like that. It just, it's not as effective, especially I just, uh, last year I had a single poly on the greenhouse. I actually added a double layer poly and inflated it. So it's got, you know, some insulation value. Now there's a air gap in between two layers of plastic. So that, that definitely added some better insulation value and able to hold some better heat. But, um, as far as the heat goes, it's definitely better to, uh, maybe heat the floor or if you got benches, you can put heated piping underneath all your plants. If you're getting the heat directly to the root zone, you're not wasting as much heat and then all the wasted heat will, will go up into the air, but you're getting it right where it needs right at the root zone. You also had mentioned that at times you have to shade the greenhouse because it's getting too much light, I guess, heat. Yeah, unless you uh, are able to, you know, open your greenhouse up enough where it's getting enough airflow, it's it's going to be a little little hotter than outside. Um, so a little, little shade goes a long way inside the greenhouse. It can uh, actually cool it down cooler than outside with enough shade, obviously. One thing that I've heard from multiple people who are or have done greenhouse is accounting for dust. And I'm curious if you've done that and if so, how and is it possible to control dust around the greenhouse at all? Um, I've got a pretty nice tree block that's around my greenhouse. So that can you know, cut down the dust pretty good. But I mean, as far as I'm concerned, it's, you know, cutting it down compared to outdoors. So it depends on how you want to look at it. Yeah, that's true. You you could, uh, you could do a wet wall if if you had, uh, some type of wet wall that the air pulled through a swamp cooler. I think the water might pull some of the dust out of the air as it's coming through the wet wall. I don't know if that, I'm, I'm not, that's just a thought. I don't know if that's, yeah, no, that's cool. I, I, I'm always uh, curious to hear because, like I said, I think greenhouses are great, and that's obviously coming from someone with no experience, but it seems like less energy, you know, a fuller spectrum of light, and outside of the dust, you know, some of the weather factors, like you said, and, and controlling those variables. But, yeah, you know, it seems like a win, like a win-win to me if you can control some of those things. Yeah, definitely. Like right now at my greenhouse, all I'm running is, you know, some fans and a few environmental controllers. It's, uh, it's only a 50 amp breaker. So it's, as far as grow rooms are concerned, it's about running the lights and, uh, you know, about 10,000 Watts of grow lights, not even, and it's pretty good size space. Right. And I know you only have basically one cycle underneath you, but, I'm curious your thoughts on sun versus indoor resin. Can you tell a difference? 
there's definitely a difference. I, I can't speak for one being better than the other, but for myself, it was definitely easier to get some nice mature resin outdoors than, than under an indoor produced light. Okay. And you brought up the moistness in Michigan. Can you talk about some of other, what you would consider maybe regional challenges to growing there? Just even the temperature swings. We kind of, our weather's all over the place sometimes. You know, during the week we could see 90 and then, you know, see in the high 50s or something. It's it's not not uncommon. Yeah, it's a pretty big swing. I, I can relate here in Texas. It's similar. You can have extreme weather in a short amount of time, for sure. And so as a cultivator, are there any genetics that you could suggest people stay clear of or that doesn't typically do so well in a place like Michigan? I couldn't say one exactly because it's all going to depend on plant health and, 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 you know, your cuts and your genetics. So. Right. It's going to be different for everyone. I would imagine. And on the flip side, a cultivar that you feel thrives there. I, you know, I really couldn't speak on that. I don't, I haven't really grown outdoors enough to really even grow one, one long enough outside to say that, you know, it's, I'm still learning. Yeah, fair enough. And some of the genetics that you're currently running. Got a little exotic genetics, um, doing a finishing up a Wonka bars, pheno hunt, picking through the last few phenotypes of those, running a lot of secret society seeds gear. It's actually Secret Society Seed Co. Running Are they Michigan-based? Yes, he is. He's running it out of Michigan. I am running his lap dance, Black Eye, uh, Van Helsing, and Crypto. He's got a lot, of, a lot of really nice stuff. I suggest checking it out. Yeah, so would you say that he's or they are breeders that are working specifically on the resin? Yep. Yeah, he uh, he did a few crosses with local guy out here, Spear Flowers, somebody who I used to extract for. He's making some pretty awesome resin himself now, and yeah, they cross some of his uh, his cuts with uh, with Secret Society Seed Co. And I think they made a couple of nice crosses. Those are the uh, black eye lap dance I'm running right now. So interested to see how they wash up. Yeah, and if I don't remember incorrectly, you told me the lap dance was a GMO crossed with a chocolate chip. No, the lap dance is uh, purple pebbles crossed with titty sprinkles. Okay. <laughs> and one thing that we talked about last time was kind of staying ahead of the curve when it came to what you have in the stable. You know, I when I talked to Ken Wall, we were in Oklahoma at a class that he had given, and there was a couple people there from Michigan, and somebody had told him the night before jokingly that, you know, GMO is so overly produced in Michigan that even if it's good, people almost don't want it because they just want something a little different. So talk to me about how you do that. How do you not only find cultivars that keep producing, obviously maybe not at the level of the GMO, but enough to where you can keep it in their stable and it's something that makes you or what you're putting out maybe a little different. 
if you ask how to find it or how to, how to stay ahead of finding them? I guess both things. Yeah, you just got to keep popping them. You got to keep running through genetics, keep, you know, trying new things. People want a lot of new stuff. They don't want to really smoke the same strains often. There's so many, you know, so many other things to try out there. It is kind of hard sometimes to keep keep something or get something that everyone's going to be happy with for a long time to come. So uh, that's definitely a hard thing to do. But, um, yeah, you just got to keep popping them and, and – keep burning through stuff i guess faster than everybody else it's hard but uh yeah i'm sure it's definitely hard and how do you balance out growing stuff that you enjoy profiles that you enjoy versus profiles that produce yeah you definitely gotta find that happy medium of something that you know is gonna produce something that uh everyone enjoys to to use if if you got something that produces a lot that's not you know very you know not a terp that everybody likes or it's you're gonna be stuck with something you know something that to be harder to sell theoretically if there was a terp profile a terp profile that you really liked but wasn't super popular amongst most people would you still grow it like do you feel like your palate could maybe influence others into trying something new? Or do you feel like people are pretty stuck in their ways and not willing to, I guess, try other things? I've even had stuff that I wasn't a hundred percent satisfied, you know, with the Terps on it. It still, you know, was a nice product and put it out and other people loved it. So there's definitely, you know, different smoke for everybody. Right. Uh, you know, it definitely depends on the end user who, who's smoking it and what, what you might like or what I might like could definitely be different. But, you know, we could all agree upon a lot of stuff, probably uh, some are really fire. Yeah, no, I agree, man. Well, I think this is a good chance maybe for us to take a quick smoke break. I want to take another opportunity to thank our community on Patreon for allowing us to produce episode 22 with Jeff from Michigan Made Melts and to give a shout out to some of our biggest contributors, including Boris from Papa and Barkley, the homie Kevin from Lifted and Dina, Manchu Gardens in Colorado, American Hashmakers in Washington, Haji aka Solventless Terps, Lost Roots Hash in Oklahoma, Kyle the Full Melt Fiend, the homies Daniel, Nate, Big C, and Mario, James the Casual Cultivator, Adam from Mission Hill Melts in Massachusetts, Totem Solventless in California, and Gendo 420 now based out of Maine. Thank each and every one of you, and I hope that you continue to enjoy the episode. So one of the things we haven't really talked about is competing, and you won six high times awards, is that correct? Uh, yeah, I believe so. What year was it that you started competing? I think it was 2015. We collaborated with a friend of mine and entered some of his Bruce Banner. Okay. And talk to me about that first experience. Was it any different than what you would normally do? Compared to nowadays, I mean, the first few times we were entering water hash, that uh, changed a few years after that. Now I, I don't even think you would see water hash 
entered in, in any of the uh, non-solvent categories. You're either going to see a rosin or uh, the THCA or, you know, or some kind of other extract of, of rosin or solventless. But, um, yeah, back then we were all entering water hash and it slowly progressed over to the rosin. Yeah, for sure. Do you think a water hash could even win a solventless competition right now in Michigan? I mean, if it melted good enough, possibly. I mean, there's some pretty good full melt out there still. It might win because it's different. You know, nowadays maybe someone might enter it on the, the thought. Maybe it'd be different. I haven't uh, competed in a few years, though, but maybe. I don't know. Couldn't be a bad shot. Do you remember some of the other cultivars that you competed with? Let's see. Did a Hindu cheese that I had uh, crossed myself. What were some of the other ones? I know we did a GMO with Sketchy Grower. I think I saw you guys, you won the 2018 with the Purple Pebbles, right? Yep, yep. That was uh, Entered Out West. I think that was the, uh, I forget if that was NorCal or SoCal. But uh, yeah, he, he sent it out there. I didn't have much to do with that other than washing it. Pretty sure someone else brought it out there for him and entered that. Might have been through Herbal Solutions. I'm not sure. I think you also mentioned last time to me you ran the archive face-off OG. Yep, yep. We uh, actually got that from same uh, same friend that Cushman Jackin that um, we ran the Bruce Banner with in 2015. We got that from him also. Yeah, and you brought up the Hindu, the Hindu cheese that you briefly told me about last time, and that was something kind of a project of yours where you were going to get rid of a Hindu and the cheesequake was already doing pretty good for you. So you just kind of hit him all. Yep. I took all the clones in the room, kind of just, uh, I was interested in breeding too. Nothing that I wasn't like super serious with, but it was a fun little project to do something different and, uh, cross a few things in the grow room and uh, chuck some pollen as uh, they like to say. Right. And, uh, yeah, it was fun. It's fun so, to see the crosses of that and see what came of them. Yeah, that's something we talked about last time is just going through those selections and finding um, ones that, you know, not only hit the smell, the production, the resin, but also the ability to get processed in water and, and do well or produce, you know. Right, yeah, it's definitely uh, hard to get one to find and check all them boxes uh, sometimes, but uh, the right crosses, it's uh, definitely doable. I'm curious, after all the experiences competing, and it sounds like you did pretty well because you started in like 2014, 15, and you've know, you won six times, then it seems like you've almost placed in every single one of these, even if you haven't won it. So I'm curious, what you think of what competitions used to mean or like winning a competition used to mean versus maybe what it means now. Do you feel that they have the same weight, if you could call it that? I mean, they definitely do to, you know, whoever's you know trying to go out there and make a name for themselves. It definitely um, 
can help put somebody on the radar and get, you know, get their name out there. It's definitely still, I think, good for marketing and, you know, good to, good to go out, put yourself out there against other people and, you know, even show yourself possibly that, you know, you, you know, you've got a better product than others, but, um, you know, definitely it, it depends to who, you know, there's some might say that, you know, they're doing too many or they're not like they used to be, but you know, it, it all depends to, to, you know, who it's, to, who's doing them, you know, if, if it means something to them, it means something to all the patients that are going, then definitely. Did you feel at any point like the cost was somewhat prohibitive? Whether it be uh, financially or through product? Yeah, yeah. After time went on for myself, like, uh, you know, I don't, I, I don't need to go there, spend a few thousand dollars on a booth to, uh, to sell my product or, you know, to get my name out there more. I, it just, it's, to me, it's, I hate to say it, but wasted money. I don't, you know, it's, it's a lot of money. Just, yeah. And one of the things that I've heard from, again, various people is, what actually happens to, for example, the product that you that you give to compete, and that sometimes maybe it's questionable as to where that goes. You know, what's your quick take on that? Like, do you do you feel like that's not cool? I mean, yeah, it's it's. I wonder. I wonder what happens. To all of it. I mean, it's definitely hard to say, but uh, it's definitely always been a thought of mine you know what happens to it all and why they still need so much money or whatever but I, it's hopefully they're not just stealing it passing it out and hopefully it's all getting tested right hopefully it's all getting smoked or it's all getting tested yeah i i bet it's all getting smoked but by who is the question yeah right by a judge <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's, yeah um i'm curious like in competition or like planning for competition would you ever grow out something that you normally wouldn't, something that isn't going to be a yielder just to be able to compete and possibly stand out? Yeah, I mean, that's uh, sometimes the strains that do stand out are, are ones that don't don't wash that well. Um, sometimes you just keep them around for head stash, and those might be the ones that are going to do it. Right. So you talked about the fact of, you know, one of the, positives of competing is kind of putting your your name out there right and especially obviously if you're doing well you're placing and and you are building a good name for yourself is that one of the things that you feel at all helped you establish relationships with other cultivators who you are now also processing for outside of your single source yeah definitely i I definitely uh remember you know, shaking hands with a few people that we ended up washing for, meeting them finally. When we're, you know, they're face-to-face with people, they feel more comfortable coming up, meeting you, or not just meeting you over the internet or messaging over the internet. So it definitely, uh, definitely was nice to uh, take it out there and meet people and um, shoot. Network was the word I was trying to find there. (laughs) Yeah, do you feel networking is is important if you want to be a processor as well, or just in general in the cannabis industry. Yeah, definitely. You definitely got to uh, find the right people to work with. If you're not growing your own stuff, if you're trying to find good stuff to process or, 
even network with people that might have you know better better hash making tech or different tech so you can learn new things and trade information and you just put your name out there so you then if somebody you know does need to need need your help or you can be of value to somebody that you know they know who you are and know who to call yeah and one thing you brought up that i found a little unique was that you prefer to process straight for a monetary exchange and not really looking to do any kind of split, let's call it. And that's a little bit different than a lot of the other folks that I've talked to or the models that you typically see. Can you tell me a little bit as to why? I mean, for me, it's... uh easier just to st- stick to what I'm doing and, and making the product rather than have to sell it, especially being up here, um, not close to the city anymore. I can just stay working with what I do and not take a cut of the product and just get paid for my time. So for, for me, that kind of works out. Right. But there are a few cultivators that you do work with that you guys kind of rep each other. Like I said last time, I saw that you and Chiba Hawks typically collaborate together. And so why make the choice to work with some cultivators or a very limited amount of cultivators in that sense and not everybody? We've worked with them for a while. We used to work with a few more, but as we got busier and busier and so did they, it just kind of became fitting that they they keep us busy, you know? So they're, they're good to work with. They're, you know, you want to find people that are easy to work with. They they are also growing towards, you know, getting products for hash. So they're kind of on the same page as me as far as uh, getting stuff and even helping them in their yield. We we like to sit down and try to find out ways to get their, their things to yield better. And uh, it's just nice to be on the same page with some people and just uh, think it's easier to find people that you can work with and have a good relationship and work on that instead of having a bunch bunch of different ones you know right and what's important in keeping that mutual respect in the relationship as time goes on what are some of the characteristics i guess you look for in a partner a partner for someone you want like uh, like a business partner any kind of partner I, i guess in the sense of like working with a cultivator and and being a processor um, I guess you just want to, you know, uh, keep them in the loop, let them know everything that's always going on, whether something yields good or bad. You just want to, you know, tell, you know, keep, be an open book and, you know, let them know everything and also kind of teach them along the way. They'll feel a lot more comfortable about the process if they understand it more a little bit. Right. And this is something I asked you last time and I kind of tiptoed around it a little, but I'll just ask more directly this time is, why would a cultivator choose you to give you the material versus anyone else? Since I'm assuming, especially now, there's a lot more people jockeying for that material. Um, they're just gonna they're gonna have to like your product more than anyone else, I guess, or they're gonna want to try yours. So, you know, I've had some people wash with me just solely for the fact that they, you know, have heard it was always so good and really couldn't get to try any. That was definitely in the past, but it's 
it's usually going to be because that, that person thinks they're going to do the best job. And you, you got to show that by making the best product you can and being reliable and doing good business. Yeah, and consistency, I'm assuming, also is a big one in all those areas that you talked about. Right. When working with a cultivator, are you looking for input from them as to what they would want as a finished product? Or are cultivators more looking to you as kind of an expert and looking more towards your recommendations to what you feel their product would be best suited for in solventless form? Yeah, I mean, they might they might be asking for something or they might not. So uh, I mean, you know, I might ask, or they might ask for, um, for maybe a little water hash, you know, kept or they might want it all squished into rosin. So there's definitely something, you know, you could ask or, you know, conversation to be had about that. Has there ever been a time where you almost disagreed with someone as to what you think should be done with the product, but have just kind of, done what they asked because you're basically processing it for them regardless yeah you know at the end of the day just like most business it's you know it's all as long as the customer's happy then that's all that matters right you know if uh if you want to work for someone's business then you, you, you got to do it sometimes right but definitely i've seen through your feed that a lot of your product seems to be fresh press and you told me last time that you are getting a little more into like the batter, cold cure kind of type consistency. And I've seen some people online refer to fresh press as an unfinished product. What are your thoughts on that? Do you agree? Do you disagree? Why do you um, prefer it? I mean, I, I enjoy the cold cure. I enjoy the fresh press. I enjoy pulling the fresh press out of the fridge and watching it cure up over a few days. So, you know, if what I've learned from customers, they, they all kind of like options also. One one customer might like one thing and another patient might like another. Definitely, you know, to some people who might like it more cured up or buttered or cold cured, it, you know, well, they might call it that, but somebody else might not. They might like it the other way, so. Right. But But to me... I think fresh press can can store longer. I, I think uh, I think it won't change as much in, in the fridge or if dried right, stored right. I don't think it'll change as much in a fresh press. But I mean, could be wrong. Yeah, as long as you're keeping it temperature controlled, I guess more so than the quote unquote cold cures. Right. Do you see any downfalls? to the batters as opposed to something like the fresh press out of curiosity? I don't see any downfalls to them. Nope. I mean, it's all whoever's, uh, whatever the preference is of the end user or the hash maker. Yeah. No, like you said earlier, whatever rocks your boat, everybody, right. everybody has their thing, but uh, yeah, I'm always curious to hear, especially cause I haven't really talked to anybody in the Midwest. One thing that you brought up was that when you were first processing as a caretaker, there was this weird gray area where 
processing for someone else wasn't necessarily not allowed, but it also wasn't outright allowed. And then you said there was kind of a fix that came into the laws that changed that. Can you talk a little bit more about that? And like, did you ever feel weird when you were doing it in the gray area as opposed to having something that clears that up more? It was definitely nice, but it definitely didn't deter me from from making hash. It was uh, always the the driving factor and getting me working is to to make some hash. So I definitely uh, wasn't going to extract my my medicine at the end of the the process. It was definitely the risk we we're going to take, and so it was growing. Even you know, for a while there was a gray area. You know, you didn't want the city or even anybody who, you know, you didn't trust to know where you, you were growing. So it, it was all kind of uh, gave you that feeling a little bit sometimes. Right. Worried, but, you know, you get used to it. Yeah. So moving topics a little bit, you brought up the freeze dryer earlier in the conversation. And I think you were probably one of the early adapters, it seemed like, moving into the freeze dry tech. You also mentioned that when you were first drying the hash, you were literally just like squeezing the excess moisture and then that transitioned into sieving it and microplaning it. So talk to me about your understanding of drying resin from the air dry time into the freeze dryer era. Definitely a lot less time consuming to uh, go to the freeze dryer instead of having to sit there and grate it and dry it on the bakery racks for a week or however long your you know your environment may take that that resin to dry. But it definitely sped up the process, made it a lot easier. We're able to process a lot more, took up less space. You fit a lot more on the freeze dryers. I think it definitely it's changed the game on on a scale factor. The, the the resin you know you could say could could be better it could be you know worse some people don't like it you know some people swear by the old methods um, but I, I think as far as you know consistency and uh, and efficiency I think it's a, a better method. Do you think that it's the ideal method or do you always feel like there could be something that could come along that might be better? Uh, I, I think freeze dryers, it's, I mean, they're, they're definitely could, could be, you know, something in the future. You're always surprised on, you know, something new might pop up, but um, I, for now, I think, you know, freeze dryers are, they're definitely doing it for me and it's producing nice quality medicine. Um, they might be able to adapt on the, you know, the freeze drying tech a little bit and the drying and how the freeze dryer works, you know, for hash or, you know, some possible thing like that. But, um, I think it drives it pretty nice. Yeah, and from the beginning, you went with the harvest, right? Is that what you're still using currently? Yep, still using them. Talk to me about some of the technological advances that have happened to the freeze dryers themselves over the time that you've been using them. When we were first using them in, uh, I think it was 2014, 2014, 2015, they, um, you couldn't even change the shelf temp on the freeze dryers. I think it was 
close to 90 or something they were set at. So the hash would come out rather different than it does now. Um, but it, it still worked. It would just be more, more of like a, in a block, you wouldn't be able to, uh, that's why it was all, always kind of sold as a little chunkier hash back then. If anybody remembers it, a little gooier. Um, but yeah, then the freeze dryers, you're able to control the shelf temp and we're able to get more of a sandy resin where we were preserving the trichome head and uh, it was able to just, you know, break apart at the end of the drying process and, and individually heads that, you know, have been preserved. Do you feel that's been an advancement in technology in particular because of hash? You know, obviously Harvest Red is not going to come out and say something like that, but. I mean, even for their food, I think maybe they are probably having issues with some foods freeze drying properly that you know, weren't like in those temperatures. Um, so I think even the freeze drying process alone, it just in general, I think it's more meant to be done in a slower process sometimes with certain, certain products. Right. And as a non hash maker and as somebody who doesn't use a freeze dryer or has never used a freeze dryer, can you explain to us what the shelf temp does and why it mattered that, in 2014, it was 90, and now it's what is it now? I'm generally around 30 to 35 degrees on my shelf temp. I'll still play around with it here and there, but that's generally where I'm at. So, a freeze dryer, it actually, in, in a simply put way, it causes the hash to condensate and sweat out the water so that the vacuum pump can pull out the moisture. Um, and it does this by freezing the product on the trays, freezing the hash, and then the shelves slightly start to warm up. And those are the heaters on the shelves. And as those warm up, the hash that is colder on the trays will sweat or condensate, causing you know water vapor to be then pulled up by the vacuum. So as those shelf heaters would kick on and get too hot in the earlier days, it would uh, cause the product to almost like melt together and not you know, not even dry it as, as properly or efficiently. Definitely still worked, but I think there was a little bit of terpene loss. Yeah, so that would be the, the main difference there. Yeah, so that's one of the things I was going to ask you is when, you know, the, the shelf temp was 90, did you feel that it was getting as properly dried as it is now? And I think you just answered that and said you didn't think so or you don't think so. Right, because like even now, like halfway through the drying process, you could go in there and kind of break up some of like the stuff in the tray, and it could be more sandy and continue to dry even more evenly. Where before it was slowly starting to mend together in a sense. Right. Is has there been any change in the amount of water content or moisture that you leave in the hash after washing it, bringing it from the bags to the trays? from 2015 to 2020? It's about the same. The, the hash seems to dry more evenly if you give it a nice watery mixture and get a good freeze on it before those hash, uh, those hash glands uh, settle on the tray or separate from the little bit of water you have it mixed in with. Um, so if you get it frozen quick enough, it'll dry better for you. And by frozen, do you mean in the freeze dryer or 
do you take the tray, freeze it elsewhere, and then put it in the freeze dryer? Right into the freeze dryer. If you can't, they tend to get colder than a freezer. But if you're you're backed up, you can put it into a freezer that's you know make sure it's you know gets cold enough and freeze it fast enough. But the freeze dryer definitely get colder and freeze it faster. One thing I've always wanted to ask, and I don't really know if you can answer this, is a, you see online a lot of people posting about oilless pumps. Is that something that you use with your freeze dryer and if so, tell me about any kind of positive or benefits to that. I actually don't. And I was I was thinking about that myself here, but I actually still use all the oil pumps. I have no issues with them. From what you've heard as a hash maker, what are some of the issues that others have had? I'm not sure. I think if anything, some people get them tend to leak a little oil. They'll spray a little oil out, but I've got oil filters. I'm the exhaust of mine and they'll catch any... Uh, misting oil and really I don't have any issues with that so okay and if there were one tip or piece of advice that you could give someone who's starting to use a freeze dryer but still learning and going through that learning curve what would it be don't give up just keep on trying you know and uh yeah start small I guess try different things do you keep your freeze dryer in a cold space? Yep, they're all in uh, my cold room that I wash in. Is that for a particular reason or just logistical setup? Um, I think they run better. I, you know, even even the oil pumps themselves, I think they run better in a cold environment. Obviously, I know it depends on genetics, but what is a typical dry cycle for you? Uh, how long they take in the freeze dryers? Yeah. Um, anywhere from uh, two to four days, depending on, on the strain or how much you may have in the freeze dryer. Okay, cool. So I wanted to talk to you about washes. And specifically, I wanted to start by talking about the first wash. And I would say the, the first wash seems to be kind of the most coveted wash of all by consumers. And so I wanted to kind of dive into that and really touch upon why you think that is. Uh, why it's the best, you said? Why people want it more than they want anything else. A lot of people think it's the best because it's, it's the first wash. They think you're getting, you know, the cleanest resin out of you know your top few bags but generally generally you are if, if you're got a clean product and you're agitating right then you're going to get your highest quality out of your first pull and i mean sometimes your second will be just as clean but generally yeah first wash is going to be your cleanest and your best heads and they've they've also had the least exposure time to water so they might have possibly more terpenes in them. I, I don't think so, but it, it could be possible. One thing you told me last time that kind of stood out to me is that you feel that the majority of heads, again, obviously depending on genetics, you feel like should come off on a first wash. Yeah, if you're agitating right, then uh, your your first wash should be one of your largest unless you're trying really, really hard to get some nice full melt and only stirring for a few minutes, 
but if you're comfortable in your wash and you've got good agitation times, generally your first first wash is going to be your biggest. Second, it's going to be a little smaller than that, if not a lot smaller. If you know you're really really getting them heads off, good could could be genetics too, but generally it's going to we'll see agitation. Yeah. So, do you feel like the heads that are falling off first, which in theory would make a first wash? Why do you think, if you had to theorize, that they're coming off easier or cleaner, a cleaner break than what you would get in a second or, or third wash? I mean, it, it could even just be like surface area. It could be, uh, you know, the nugs that you have in there, all the ones that are, you know, closer to the outside that have more surface area coming off easier. They dether could de- easily be a different type of head, a uh, different uh, maturity of the gland could cause something to uh, come off faster or slower than the other. Right. Yeah. It, that's interesting because like you said, there's different types of trichomes and each of those also has different points of, I guess, maturity or how you call it. Right. And so in the end, they all have a different density as well, right? And so agitation with water and water hash making is essentially just separation by density. Right, could be. You said last time in regards to maturity that you felt that the harvest window for hash was shorter than it is for flowers. Can you expand on that a little? Um, I think it could also be uh, just just needs to be a, a different necessarily than flowers. Like your perfect harvest for for flowers might not be the perfect harvest date for for hash. So you might get better results doing a slightly different harvest date for two different processes. Generally, for myself, I like to harvest my hash product a little earlier than if I were growing it out for flower. So going back to the idea of the first wash. It almost seems like a twofold thing. One, that the the oil glands in the first collection are fuller or more dense, let's call them. And the second part being the lack of contamination or cleanliness, let's call it as well. Right, yeah, because as you're you're whipping it more, I think the the chlorophyll and the, the plant material itself is becoming easier to extract or more damage so that it, you know, it falls apart more. And uh, so maybe that's why just your second wash is, you know, dirtier than the rest. It's not that the heads might even be different, might be the same, but it's got more plant matter with it. It's hard to say. Yeah. It's been more agitated. Right. So I guess the question that I have is, do you feel like the first wash is better off on its own due to the fact that it's less contaminated than adding, let's say, a second, possibly third wash, depending on genetics, and combining all of them to have a fuller range of cannabinoids, possibly. Yeah, if you uh, if you took your first wash and then took your later washes and squished them separate, you're gonna see definite difference 
and and the products. Um, and one might, you know, your your first one might be more potent. To, you know, it's it's definitely gonna be different. Do you think that it's more potent, or do you feel like it's less contaminated? Also, more flavorful. I'm assuming. Yeah. In most cases. Yeah, it should be. Have you ever had an instance where the first wash was not the best pool you made? The only time that would ever happen, it would have been way back in the day, you know, when we we're still, still, still experimenting, trying to get any material we could, or we we're still learning. And if you had something that was pretty dirty and, or had some kind of other outside contamination, maybe it was like a dusty grow or, Maybe they had a dog that they let in the grow room, you know, you could see some of that stuff in the first wash. And if you're lucky enough, you get most of it out in the first wash, you might see a slightly cleaner second wash, but that's going to be, be your only time that that might happen. I would, I would say. Yeah, that makes sense. I was just curious if you had ever seen that and more, I guess I was thinking on along the lines of a genetic variation. But what you said makes way more sense. It's just having almost like these environmental issues that, that cause a different type of contamination, like you said. Yeah, you'd almost sure. hope that they would extract better than the hash and come out earlier. And, you know, uh, I mean, a lot of people with outdoors or some things will do the, the water dunk method to kind of wash some things off it. So kind of maybe along the same lines there. Right. When you first started washing, were you washing in a machine? Uh, when I first started, I mean, the runs were so small, we were just doing them in, in bags. But generally, after we really got going, we were using machines, the bubble, bubble magic machines. And then uh, we slowly got over into hand washing, just realizing how, how dirty the bottom of the machines. And they really did get, and they were hard to clean. So we started hand washing things for a long time. Until the uh, the icon came out here this year from ice extracts. Yeah, that's definitely something I wanted to uh, talk about. But the hand stirring went on for how many years? Then probably probably like six six seven years or so. We were hand washing. Okay, yeah, so a while. Yep. Did you find any benefit in hand stirring outside of cleanliness compared to the machines? I mean, the uh, definitely the cleanliness and the product itself, just because you could uh, maybe get a better first wash. And, and compared to those bubble bubble magic machines, they were a little harder at the time for myself to get a nice clean first wash. But I see people do it. You know, definitely not knocking them or anything. I see still see people use them and make awesome products. So it's uh, definitely can be done. I think just with the right genetics and the right material, uh, getting it in the washing machine, there's nothing wrong with it. Right. Personal preference. Yeah. I've heard the machines can be really good as long as you're really dedicated to cleanliness. Yep. So with your washes, how are you separating them and processing them? Um, we do it by strain or size. Uh, right now we got the icon, so anything big enough to go in there, we'll do that. And anything, you know, small enough, we'll still hand wash it. 
Okay, so your first pool, are you separating that by specific uh, microns? Okay. Yeah, yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah, we still uh, we still uh, use most of the bags. A lot of people just catch most of it in their 40 bag, their 120 through 40, but we'll use um, the 220, 180, 150, 120, 70, and 40 and 25 bag. Okay, and then you're drying those all separately, I'm assuming, as well? Yeah, I'll put them all in the same tray and just kind of know where I laid them and be pretty good about just seeing the differences in it. Or just even for when I'm pulling it out of the bags, you can see the, the yield and uh, see which, which heads you're getting more of compared to maybe even their last grow if they're getting more larger heads compared to smaller ones can compared to, you know, maybe they used uh, new grow lights this time and you can see that they're producing larger, smaller heads. You can give them feedback on things like that or even the maturity if they're taking a different harvest date, um, th- things like that and really keeping all them bags in, in, your, uh, in, in the buckets there. It's, it's really worth it to, to see the, the different things that are going on with uh, the strain or the grow. So are you recombining them at some point later once you're rosining them? Yep. Yeah, once we uh, rosin them, we'll usually combine them all. If, we, uh, if we're able to pull a little full melt out of the first run, we will for a client usually or myself. Right. No, but that's cool. I think it's smart that you're going – I mean, it's more work, obviously, to go and separate everything bag by bag. But to have that visual reference and, and like you said, really see – the variations between, you know, crop to crop or genetics to genetics and grower to grower is obviously a valuable thing as a hash maker, it seems like. Yeah, no, it really is. I think a lot of people skip over that thought alone uh, of just being able to see the size of heads they're getting and how many of each size are compared to before the future. Yeah, because like you said, that is something that you can, that's data that you can share with the grower and, you know, the grower can directly correlate to whatever is going on in that grow. Like you said, whether it's a change of of spectrum of lights or temperature, whatever it may be. Right. Yeah, I think there's a lot, lot to that. Do you feel that the cultivators that you work with have become better growers as well from this type of feedback? I definitely think it helps. You know, I, I think definitely doesn't hurt anything. I can help them. Any information I can give, like you asked earlier about even how do you get someone to work with you? I think that's also something that uh, goes along those lines. Also any, any data you can give them, any feedback you can give them is going to make them feel more comfortable. And Yeah. So going back to the wash bags, when you separate everything, you dry it out. Let's say you do pull full melt, right? What is your rosin then after that? What's, I guess, the range of microns that you're using to make rosin if you are pulling full melt versus if you're just doing rosin? I mean, it's, it's just about the same. We're just going to be pulling a little bit more of like the 70 or the 120 out of the first run, but generally it's pretty similar. We're not taking like a huge amount. We'll be taking like an ounce or something out of first wash. Right. So your mixed micron range, would you call it like 70 to 149 typically? 
yeah, generally or yeah, anything above 150 is usually not uh, not going in the rosin squishing. But uh, sometimes it can be. But generally, it's going to be at yeah, 150 down to 40 and 25. What do you do with, I guess, the larger hits that maybe are a little more contaminated, let's say? You can mix them up some coconut oil, make some caps with them, stuff like that, edibles. Have you found any genetics in the last couple of years that have yielded more in those bags than before, let's say? Um, and which ones? The, the top few? or Yeah, let's say the the 150s, the 160s? Um, yeah, generally, uh, you're going to notice it in your 150 and your 120, something that's got some bigger heads once you're producing some nice bag size, uh, 150, 120 microns, and that's more than your 70s. And, you know, you're along the right lines of maturity and getting some strains that are producing some good size heads. So definitely... I'd say 150. I really like that. It's uh, it's a really nice size head that uh, if you can get something producing that big, it's it's interesting. Yeah, and you spoke to me last time that in reference to maturity, you felt that one of the things that occurs is a change to the outer wall of, of the trichome, similar to how various people, including yourself, have expressed this idea of it being almost like a raisin prunes up. So I'm curious what you make of the 40 bag and what's in there outside of small contaminants that weren't able to be captured higher up. Yeah. So I think like your bottom two bags, your 25 and your 40, you're going to have a range of immature trichomes that were too small and didn't get mature enough. And then you're also going to have trichomes that maybe too mature and start to degrade and maybe have shrunken, but this is all going to vary depending on the, the maturity of the product and the strain. But I, I definitely think there's a range of heads in those, those bottom uh, few bags being too small on the, whether it's immature or too mature, I think it could be either. Yeah. Cause I've actually had some people tell me like, for example, the, their 40 might not look great, but it's, more quote-unquote stony, you know, more kind of couch-locky, let's call it, than some of the higher microns. So I find that interesting that you, that you say that and that it could be a mix of outside of different types of trichome heads, but a mix of maybe immature ones, like you said, with ones that are quote-unquote kind of past their prime. And what do you typically do with your 40, if anything? Um, we, uh, we'll mix uh, all the water hash together, full spectrum, full spectrum rods, and squish it all uh, all together. We'll just mix it all up. Okay, so you do include your 40? Yep. All right, cool. Yeah, I, that's what I was asking you earlier. I thought you guys were doing, the, I guess, the 70 and up, but that's cool that you're doing the, full, the whole thing. The, the Yeah, yeah, sorry about the... Uh, the confusion, my bad. No, not at all. I, I just wanted to make sure that I got that right as well. So would you say that the 40 brings something to the hash? Does it create or give a fuller spectrum to the it, high? It definitely gives it a fuller spectrum. Probably 
wouldn't make it more potent in a THC sense, I wouldn't think, or a cannabinoid sense, uh, possibly. But it might bring more range of terpenes, um, so different profiles. But but some might say if, if you squish that separate from your 70 and up, that, that's going to be better. So it, it might be making it worse, you know. Yeah, everybody has their own way of, of doing it. I think doing the full spec is kind of cool. I know some people might not agree with that and, you know, that's okay as well. But yeah, that's, I would say the truest representation of a cultivar, I suppose. Yeah, yeah just having a full spectrum uh, size of heads and derps. And... Yeah, I found it interesting though that you mentioned that you use the 25 as well because a lot of people have just kind of stopped using that is there a specific reason for that uh i I think they're uh maybe it's draining too slow for them when they're uh, putting their water in there possibly Uh, i'm not sure yeah so is that material still something that you're able to use for example like edibles or topicals or something yeah it's still a really good product it actually comes out really nice and clean um but uh there's not a whole lot of it right do you feel it's wasteful to not collect that yeah i, I, I definitely I, like worst case you can just take all the water after and dump it in a 25 bag right let's talk a little bit about color since we're on the the spectrum of cannabinoids and terpenes is do you have a color preference do you think that lighter hash is better or more appealing than something with a darker tint? I mean, I think there's a kind of a double-edged sword to that because too light, then it's too immature. So I think that you want that right mixture of, I think, like a cloudy head that, uh, so, so your resin wouldn't be necessarily dark, but it wouldn't necessarily be super light, be somewhere in the middle there. But I mean, it's all going to be preference also on, on the end patient who's going to be smoking it maybe they might like a, a certain way that the the medication might might be at a little little more mature a little more immature or certain harvest date yeah so when you're looking for ripeness in your plants if you had to give us some kind of approximate ratio of cloudy compared to either clear or amber what would that be I think you're gonna be looking for mostly mostly cloudy with just maybe a couple starting to go amber. You're gonna to wanna to get it a little before that, but I mean that's I'd say mostly cloudy is what you're looking for. Okay. And was that something that changed for you over time as you started to grow for resin? Were you pulling earlier or later? Yeah, you might wanna go an extra week or so then what I would normally pull all my hash product for if I were keeping it for flowers, I'd probably go extra week or so. Maybe okay, a cool. less, but anywhere another five to seven days, I'd say. Yeah, that's a pretty decent amount of time, you know, so that's interesting to hear. You brought up the icon from Ice Extracts and you, again, were one of the, seems like early adopters. So talk to me a little bit about it. Oh, it's a great machine. It's definitely uh, hard to uh, get a lot done when you're hand washing sometimes. So uh, definitely helped up the the scale and up the production. 
definitely still able to achieve a nice full melt product out of the first wash. So there's definitely no concerns there. It's got full control of the machine, whether it be the the strength of the spin or the amount of time that it spins one direction compared to the other. It's all enter, like change each one forward, different speed, then reverse speed, different times. It's pretty cool. Yeah, and so what is the capacity on the machine? Um, they've got a few different sizes now, but I've got the 74, I believe it refers to the gallons of the machine. I think it's 74-gallon machine. Um, I mean, we've we've put up to about 12K in material in there. Okay, and then obviously just to clarify, that's fresh frozen? Some of it might be partially dried. We don't run much dry material, but we do have some some growers that will actually dry stuff for like two days or so and then bag it up. Okay, and I'm curious as a hash maker, do you see that make a difference at all with the hash yield wise, quality wise? For that grower, it seems to work. They, they like doing it for myself. I don't have a huge amount of like drying space. So it, it works for me just to, just to bag it up fresh. So, I mean, it all depends which way might work for you, but uh, some strains might do better on, on the drier end compared to fresh frozen. So it's, it's all about playing with all those variables and seeing what works for you or what works for that strain. Yeah, and I've seen that you guys inside the Icon are working still in work bags. It's not just loose material in there. Yep, you can uh, you can run it loose, but I haven't decided to do that yet. I still have always, uh, even when I was hand washing, I always used work bags, so it was kind of familiar to me and the process, so it made sense to just continue doing it. Yeah, it feels like work bags were kind of a topic of discussion a few years ago that isn't so relevant maybe now. But I'm curious why, outside of being accustomed to using work bags, you like using them. Do you feel like they just help you provide a cleaner product? Yeah, and to just keep our our uh, our equipment cleaner for the long run. You know, we want to be able to produce a nice quality medicine over and over again, you know, so if it's our materials or our equipment's taken a beating or harder to clean and stuff like that, then it's definitely, I wouldn't say an issue, but it definitely helps having the work bags or something like that. But yeah, there's definitely people that, you know, for a while that uh, said maybe it washed easier or washed better without the work bag. And I could see that maybe you'll get most of it out in your first wash easier or something like that. But, um, I mean, as long as you're agitating right and your, your times are right, you'll still get it all out of, uh, with a work bag. As long as you're not overfilling them, you know, like I said, your agitation is right. You're spinning enough. You're, you're going to get everything out of it. Yeah. So you don't feel like there's really much of a loss or much of a clog, let's say, in working them in the work no, you bag. Just, you just got to use them correctly. I mean, if you stuff them completely full or you don't agitate long enough. I, I, I would, I would think the, the agitation times, the wash times compared to not using one are going to be different. So somebody might wash one for 20 minutes with a work bag and another 20 minutes without work bag and say, Oh, it's better, but it's just, it's going to be different, you know? So. Right. And on a piece of equipment like that, I know you mentioned now there's multiple sizes, but do you feel like there's a fine line between 
let's say someone who is a hash maker on a smaller scale or even like someone who just does it for personal and someone who's making more of a a commercial, a more of a commercial, or in this case, you know, a medical product in your case to spend a decent amount of money on a washer like that versus what that's actually bringing to the person. I think it, it's something that's built properly. So it's going to last. So, I mean, if you're looking at the alternative use, I mean, you're definitely, it's definitely going to be around to last. So even their smaller ones for, for the home use, I, I think it's definitely, if you've got the money, it's, it's worth it. It's going to last compared to, you know, the plastic ones or maybe even the, you know, the trade off of hand washing it, but you know, the, the money is going to be the limiting factor there, I guess, if you can afford it. Right. If it's, you know, worth it to you. If you own a low templates rosin press, then you already know that the quality of their equipment is excellent, especially at their price point. If you're looking for a rosin press, you're not going to find a company that provides more bang for your buck than Low Templates, who you can visit at lowtemp-plates.com. They keep it simple but effective. Their presses are reliable. And again, for being high-end rosin presses, they're extremely reasonably well-priced. Their systems are all modular, allowing you flexibility. All their gear is made in the US. And just in case, they back all their gear with a lifetime warranty. And now, Low Templates is bringing their same standards of excellence to their new commercial grade washing machine, the Osprey 75, a 75 gallon stainless steel washing vessel that allows you to wash up to 21,000 fresh frozen grams at a time for up to a whopping 186 pounds a day. The Osprey 75 is a culmination of years of research and development, and like their presses, Low Templates has created the Osprey 75 with modularity in mind, allowing you to add features such as the double jacketed walls that work well with their optional chillers, and they even have interchangeable impellers. Much like their presses, they want to focus on providing you the absolute best product that they can at the best price that they can. And coming in at $23,000, there's nothing comparable on the market. Unlike their presses, who can be used from the personal level to the commercial level, this machine is more specifically geared towards commercial hash makers that are looking to become more efficient and to possibly scale up. The Osprey 75 is now available for pre-order. If you use our savings code, the letters THI, it'll save you $250 off the Osprey 75 machine. Or if you use our savings code, the letters THI, it'll save you 5% on all the other purchases with low temp plates. Again, visit them at lowtemp-plates.com. That's L-O-W-T-E-M-P-plates.com. Or on their Instagram, lowtemp.plates. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. Yeah, and again, I it could be looked at as an investment, I suppose, but it's just depending on on what you're trying to do. But yeah, I haven't talked to anybody who's been using it. So I was just curious, you know, what you thought in regards to to the price point versus how much you can help someone scale up. 
Oh yeah, for like myself as a hash maker, it definitely helped me scale up. And anybody that that might be uh, a bottleneck in the process is you know getting enough wash in a day, or just even the physical aspect only being able to wash so much in a day. It definitely is uh, the right tool to have. Yeah. So you mentioned the twelve k in washing. How many washes are you able to pump out a day if you have a lot to do? I mean, that takes me a few hours. I mean, you could easily do four to six of them, depending on how, you know, how long you want to work. But in a 12-hour shift, you could easily do you know, 40,000, 50,000 grams in 12 hours. Yeah, that's quite a bit. And I've seen that you guys did kind of a little video together, and they have a digital interface on the machine. And you mentioned some of the things that you have the ability to control, such as the direction of the flow or the direction of the spinning. What are some of the other things that you find cool about some of these kind of automated features? I, I think as far as even comparing to like hand wash, I mean, it, there's almost could be more consistency compared to hand washing. If, if you're getting the machine dialed in just right, you, you can trust that it's getting stirred that one way for the next so many minutes where, you know, people were, were not, machines we can't do it the same way constantly so it's i I definitely think that could be a i don't know what i'm trying to say here (laughs) that's definitely nice it's definitely nice okay cool well jeff man i appreciate you hanging out with me i know we've been chatting for a while so i'll start kind of winding it down I'm curious if you could talk to us a little bit about what medium you're using right now in the greenhouse and has that changed for you over your growing slash hash making career? Yeah, right now in the greenhouse, I'm just using some ProMix. Using the ProMix HP with the mycos already added into it. Um, I will amend it with a few things. I use the uh, Roots Organic Uprising Foundation and the Grow and Bloom as well as uh, sometimes I'll hit them with a little bit of uh, more mycos and I'm transplanting, obviously. Also, I had a little worm castings in there, but I mostly transfer it over into soil because I'm using a lot, lot more teas, a lot more organics, a lot more amendments now with the, uh, the greenhouse. I uh, used to do a little cocoa indoors, but um, and before that, I actually did a lot of hydroponics, but I've kind of tried a little bit of everything. But for the greenhouse right now, soil seems to be working right, real nice for me. Yeah, and talk to me a little bit about the teas. You know, a lot of people bring that up, but it's not something that I've really talked in depth with anybody about. How does that process work? I've got a tea brewer. I uh, use the uh, Dragonfly Earth Medicine microbial teas along with uh, a little bit of compost. So I had some uh, worm castings in there. And then I uh, usually brew that up for uh, anywhere from 24 to 36 hours and um, water it in, try to get the pots inoculated and get the uh, microbes growing in there. Um, not like super, super scientific on it myself, but plants seem to love it. And uh, definitely need to learn more myself even on, on microbes. Yeah, so in essence, by brewing, it almost seems like to me that's what's almost creating this aeration that allows these microbes to start 
really kind of thriving in these teas? Would you right, say yeah. that's yeah, you need to oxygenate your your brew there to help get it going. Yeah, and so then that once you pour it into the plants, in essence, I suppose it's supporting just like the biodiversity of the soil and therefore the root system of the plants. Correct, correct. You got and it. you talked to me a little bit about your process of flushing. And so since you are in a greenhouse, are you able to go through that process and then still reuse your soil? Yep. Yeah. You just got to reamend it. You said in your particular case, you like to go about four weeks uh, with a flush. Can you kind of break down what you feel that does for the plant? Well, it just gives it a longer time to flush. I, I, you know, I'm more concerned about having a cleaner product than having more of it. Uh, for the first two weeks of flush, I'll just cut off the nutrients and start watering just normal amounts, normal feedings with just water. And then once I get to the last two weeks, I'll hit them pretty heavy, and start really soaking them and flushing the pots out. I don't know how to ask this, but, you know, with bottled nutrients or more synthetic-based material, the flush would seem maybe more important trying to run soil in an organic fashion like you are. So I mean you can uh, you could over amend your pots too. I mean that's still still a concern. If you put too many organic amendments in there then they're still gonna be breaking down as you're trying to flush out. Still don't wanna overfeed your your medium or your, your plants. But generally from my knowledge the organics are gonna be easier to break down than like a say a salt based synthetic nutrient. Right. And you were saying that you still feel those weeks that you're hitting it hard with water, there's still nutrients in the soil. You're just not wanting to add more. And to a certain degree, reduce the amount that's in there already. Do you feel that that translates into like the end product? Can you, can you taste it? Can you feel it? Yeah, yeah, just uh, just trying to really make sure my, my pots are getting flushed out. Like, let's say maybe the, the plants were already fading at week four or five. Maybe I wouldn't cut the nutrients off right away. Maybe I would feed for another week, but generally I'm got, right now I have got, you know, nice deep dark green plant and just, you know, want to really make sure that these big pots get flushed out. So I'll cut the, the nutrients off, like you said, a little early and, you know, get them going. Okay, cool. And when it comes to the moisture in your pots at harvest time, do you feel like that affects the trichomes? Yeah, I think uh, it's just kind of something I've you know hypothesized about, but uh, I really think the water content that's within the the pot or the the plant itself is going to change how that trichome that really might extract or even what's you know. Just uh, maybe even the, you know, the size of it might make it swell up. It might make it do all kinds of different things. So there's definitely, I think there's something there to that. What, what it is, I'm not sure, but definitely something that I want to uh, keep learning on. Yeah. And we talked about that in regards also to genetics as well, where obviously genetics 
are probably playing a large part in what happens to the trichome. But are there things that people can do such as, you know, watching water content or moisture content in a plant towards the end that can affect or somewhat change the expression of that trichome? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, we've been trying to pull it more on the drier side lately, whether it's working or not, I, I can't say. Um, but yeah, right. we like to really dry our plants out at the end for them. Cool. Talk to me about some of the innovations that you see moving forward in the solventless sector. I, I think even the freeze dryer alone, I think we're going to see some more companies get involved with making them, producing them. Um, and especially solely just for hash. So that'll be interesting to see that especially. How about in the grow area? Yeah, I mean, as far as, as far as like uh, even the lighting goes, um, as this, you know, the LEDs are progressing or different lighting technologies are changing. We're seeing different trichome development. And that's, I think the, the grow is, we're going to see a lot of different things. Uh, progress as even new cultivars come about and uh, new growing techniques, better ones. But yeah, things have changed a lot even in the last five to 10 years. So it's interesting to see what's going to happen in another five to 10. I agree. It's an exciting time, man. Favorite hash plant to grow? Hmm. Uh, Banana OG, Oregon Kid Cut. Is that something you're still rocking? I had to get rid of it. It was uh, just kind of prone to powdery mildew, but I've been trying a lot of crosses that were made with that same uh, cut, trying to find something similar to what we had. Okay, cool. And what was it about that plant that stood out for you? Just, just the terps about it, man. There were something special there. They're, uh, it'll be interesting if we could find another one like that. But the NOG is nice. I, I don't know if I've ever had that that specific cut, which I know obviously is kind of where it stems from, but yeah, it's, it's a nice profile. So I can see that favorite hash to smoke. Might be the Skittles right now. That's pretty nice. I, I enjoy that. I, uh, been running that for Chibahawk. I just got a couple cuts from him to put in my garden. He was nice enough to bless me with that. So I guess that would be the one if I, uh, just getting a couple cuts from him. Nice. Yeah, no, I think a lot of people like that Skittles. I've only had a chance to try it, I think, once from third gen a while back at the Emerald Cup uh, in water hash form. And it was ridiculous, man. It was just uh, one of the most flavorful hashes I think I've ever I've ever had. So Yeah, it's wild. <laughs> <laughs> if you could recommend a place in Michigan for people who are kind of in the glove area, whether it's, you know, a lake or something to, to chill at, what would that be? Hmm. Um, I grew up on Lake St. Clair, so I guess it'd be Muscamute Bay over on Lake St. Clair. But, uh, yeah, it's a little smaller lake um, over in the metro Detroit on the east side. Yeah, it's a real, real fun area. Okay, cool, yeah. Hopefully when uh, – the pandemic ceases, people can get back to traveling and, and check that out, including me. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, let me know when you come out. We'll, uh, we'll go for a boat ride. 
Yeah, for sure, man. I'd love to. I, that's uh, one of the definitely the things I miss about doing them in person is just being able to, you know, kind of chill with people and obviously try resin and it's a different it's a different thing. But we're 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 at where we're at, you know. So yeah, right. Um, favorite Michigan hash maker, not including yourself. Huh, that's a good question. There's a lot of them. There's a lot of good hash. Yeah, like I said, man, it's it's this little odd hot spot that I would have never imagined, but it's cool to see. Huh. Uh it it might be superior. He's got some nice genetics. Okay, cool. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier you used to process for them and now they're kind of I guess doing their own thing. Yep. Cool. Yep, yeah, he's got uh, Purple Pebbles. That's pretty nice. I like that one. Some of the crosses that uh, Hemet Secret Society made that uh, has that's in it. Yeah, those are the same guys you were talking about earlier with the lap dance and. Yep, and the black eye. They uh, yeah, Purple Pebbles is crossing both of those. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'm always glad to get you know people out there who are putting good genetics for hash for people to hear because you hear kind of similar ones over and over. So I'm glad you, that, that you brought that up. If you had to pick three hash makers who have been the most influential to you, who would those be? Hmm. You could put a uh, skunk man, Sam, bubble man, and nicotine. Okay, cool. I'm just curious, and I never really ask as to the whys, but with Skunkman Sam, what's the influence there? Uh, just all the information that he, like, he was one of the first few people, like, you know, teaching and handing down his information, and was well known for that, and it was cool to uh, just even hear some of that through the grapevines, you know, it was cool. Yeah, cool. Well, Jeff, man, I really appreciate you hanging out with me again this is Jeff from Michigan Made Melts. You can follow them on Instagram at Michigan underscore made underscore melts. Is there anything you want to say? No, man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It was fun. Yeah, it was fun. I appreciate you again. This is us signing off and we'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to the Hashish Inn. If you like the podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. Until next time.